rainwater. Yes. How often do you organize your comic books, movies, the collections, so to speak? Do you do you are you a a organizer? You know, and this will come up. This will come up more later on as we go into the episode. Based on my zodiac profile, I should be more of an organizer than I am. Um, I'm more of a digital organizer. Like digitally, like all my like, like all my files of my artwork is like organized in a very specific manner that would probably be extremely confusing to literally anybody else. <laughs> like some kind of like a code. Da Vinci code. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but in terms of like physical stuff, maybe not so much. Okay. But yeah, I definitely um, I am becoming that way with the music that I listen to. Um, I am starting I've been over the last like couple of years I've been very um what's the word like I've been I've been very meticulously crafting playlists for myself based on not on genre but on like generally like either specific moods or specific like um maybe archetypes is the best way of putting it I was just going to find my playlist real quick to kind of give you an idea of like what what's going through my head when I organize these playlists. I was little, so that I was going to be my follow up question. So you're already one step ahead of me, which was what rhyme or reason do you use when you actually do yeah. sit down to organize or as this episode yeah. is uh, focused on curating. And that's something that I want to that and that's where I want to um, kind of go with is like so like in terms of the names of my playlists right mm -hmm. college radio junk blood flow <laughs> blood flow beats that classic shit stoned <laughs> dad rock late night deep rest and crunchy goodness <clears throat> all right probably my favorite I was literally just about to say what the fuck is crunchy goodness music. Oh, Crunchy Goodness is one of my favorite ones. That one's that one's actually my um, that's my writing playlist. Uh huh. And it's all '90s new age, like <laughs> very synth heavy. Um, there's a lot of like dolphin sounds and shit like that. So like, <laughs> did you ever um, you probably saw these commercials when you were a kid for like, uh, I want to say it's called like Pure Mood. They are these uh, CD. There are these CD compilations where, like, I don't know, some weird person in Europe was, like, putting together, like, just music at the time that was, like, kind of new-agey and had a particular sound of the 90s. So, like, uh, there's, like, a, a dance version of the X-Files theme song, Inya, um... Teardrop, which is like a song you can you will most definitely hear whenever you do yoga in a studio, like um, and on and on and on. I can't I, the rest kind of escape me at the moment. Uh, Cusco, who's like a really big one. Um, so anyway, the whole play I, for whatever reason it works for me when I'm writing Trailer Park Warlock because a lot of the, the a lot of the vibes of Trailer. Okay, for first of all, Trailer Park Warlock takes place in like an alternative history version of the 90s. So I wanted to have music that kind of matches that in some way. And I also wanted to have music that like kind of stirs up my 
my nostalgia when I was a child of a lot of that new agey kind of spiritual stuff. Cause a lot of that stuff was kind of taboo in the sense that my parents didn't really want me to interact with it. Cause we were very like, you know, evangelical Christian home. And that was considered sure. like, um, Bad not juju. necessarily devil stuff. Bad juju. World. Yeah. 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 And so now that I'm like a grown ass adult, I'm indulging myself completely in that stuff. And uh, that's part of the reason why I find it so interesting and why that wakes up all those emotions, I guess, for me when I'm listening to that playlist. Uh, for you, Jal, do you how, how about how do you organize your playlists? Well, my playlists are specifically curated around music that I have filtered through by listening to random shit, like on stations or just whatever, like suggested music, recommended albums, yada, yada, yada. Uh, I'll list, I'll filter through the shit. And it's usually, I've talked about this before. Music is my muse. Um, that's how I can come up with ideas for set pieces and characters or just, you know, beats or scenes or whatever it may be that I'm, I'm, that just hits me. It's just like, naturally comes to me while I'm listening to music and it could be anything. It could be music with lyrics. It could be symphonic music. It could be whatever. Um, but what ends up happening is, is we, it falls into the Blake Snyder save the cat thing where once I understand what the scene that I'm getting from that music is, I start understanding Mm -hmm. where it would lie in a structure. So my playlists are specifically curated by the movie that I'm wanting to brainstorm at that particular time. So I have a haunted playlist. I have an Indom playlist. I have a spy agency playlist, all these things. And some of them are filled with shit that I'm still yet to go through and filter, like to pull shit out that I don't think is working for me. But most of them, the ones that are on the, the, the chopping block. So haunted is, is pretty much curated at this moment. And Indom is pretty close to it as well. Spy agency has got a whole bunch of shit in it that it still needs to get filtered. But what I do is once I've realized what that set piece or scene is going to be, and I understand where it's going to go in the movie, I start arranging them from opening scene to end credits. And that's just what it is. But the weird thing is that's just a weird thing for me to look at not listen to look at because when i'm actually listening to the music i put it on shuffle it's a weird hypocrisy that goes into where i I enjoy the (laughs) chaos of the brainstorm i feel like brainstorming has to be chaotic but when i look at it i'm like okay i know where that goes i know where this goes and i have to move them around occasionally when i'm shuffle it's almost like working the beat board through music I think that might almost be sort of like the process uh, we had talked about recently when you were talking about how when going through editing, you uh, flip the image, right? Yes. So that you can look at it from a new angle. Yes. So, I mean, playing with the linearity of it, I think, allows you to sort of, I would imagine, allows you to sort of re-piece together all the events in your head so that maybe there are new things that come out of it. I've noticed that I've picked up on things where I was like, oh, Cause like like it'll it'll be an action beat and then it'll go to like you know an opening scene or something like that and I'll be like oh that's not how that was supposed to go, and it challenges my perception of the structure where it's like oh well that could have been a flashback, that could be a flashback scene and now that works like I didn't know where that yeah. that scene goes before but now I know that that could be a flashback maybe it doesn't go there but it could be a flashback so 
it's definitely curated. I'm definitely meticulous in how I plan it. It's how I intake it most of the time. I haven't. I, I occasionally I'll just let it play through straight. Um, usually I won't play the whole thing. That's just when I'm like killing time or on a drive and just want to listen to music or something like that. Uh, occasionally I'll get stuck on the just loop one song and then I'll just be jamming to whatever the fuck it may be. But uh, it's very story based on how I, I cre- curate the actual playlist to begin with and how I curate um, like what songs and where those songs go. When it comes to other things like my Blu-ray collection and the 4K and all that kind of stuff, standard typical shit, genre, alphabetical, yeah, that's you know what I mean. I like that's pretty much it. That's it's a pain in the ass because you know you get something that starts with C, and all of a sudden mm-hmm. the the shelf that was already jam packed to completion with Blu-ray sitting on top because they don't fit anymore, have to take one out. Slide everything down, put the new one in, take another one out, put the other one in. It's really <laughs> fucking pain in the ass, and I wish I came up with a new system that worked. But, uh, yeah, other than well, that, it's a I'm question a I, pretty classical bitch. A question I have to ask you, because I feel like you strike <laughs> me as the kind of person who would go so far as to curate an entire evening in the sense of you're going to make a mill, you're going to watch a movie, and you're going to yep. have that, that fill like thematically correspond with the movie you're about to watch. I think I told you this before, like back when we first started this podcast, we were like two podcasts in, I was telling you I was going to start my own po- another like solo podcast where it was all about curating evenings around I a movie. I do remember you talking about this. It was going to yeah, yeah. be, yeah, I never got around to actually doing it. Um, hashtag dad life. But, um, right. The idea was going to be, yeah, I'm going to make a meal that's like a gimmick. You know, it's kind of like got puns involved with how it is. Like I've done that before. Before we had our, uh, our kid for my wife once, October, like horror movies, obviously I'm all about that shit. So yeah. I did a themed themed date night at home for me and my wife. And we were going to watch Sleepy Hollow, the Tim Burton one. And I was going to make a headless steak salad with a side of corn and like um, sweet potato mash and all this kind of stuff. Just like a very like autumn, sleepy, hollow kind of based dinner. And like the the joke was, because I don't eat salad, it's a headless salad. So I cooked the steak and then I just threw out a head. <laughs> I took the head of lettuce and I threw it out. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, like I've, I've done that before. I enjoy doing that. I enjoy the idea of... I guess this kind of ties in with the whole curating thing. Like you think about like a museum when they put like together a show or something like that. But I think what you really want to do, and this is me personally, especially when I'm approaching actually my filmmaking and storytelling, um, you want a harmonious atmosphere. I feel like that's something a lot of people enjoy. Like a lot of people will watch shitty movies if it fits a particular atmosphere that they're seeking. Oh yeah. So like Independence Day is not a, I mean it's a great movie. I fucking love Independence yeah. Day. I enjoy the shit out of it. But it's not a it's not a movie you want to watch every day. It requires like you're saying it requires a certain mood that you have to be in. Nobody it's watches just... nobody watches Independence Day before June. Like yeah. no before June <laughs> and after the uh, and, and after August 1st. 
Like there's a window (laughs) that you could watch Independence Day in and enjoy it. The rest of the time you're like, eh, Independence Day is on. Eh. No, it's an absolutely perfect summer movie. And it's definitely like, it's of that genre of blockbuster movies like Jurassic Park or, um, Mm. uh, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of flaking on here, but even like the old Matthew Broderick Godzilla could even fall in there somewhere where it's just like, you know, these blockbuster movies that you would watch with friends because you want to have a good time together and you're not going to be, doesn't require you to be too super involved with the movie. Yeah. And it's especially movies like that. Also where you like memorize all the lines independence day is definitely a movie like that. Jurassic parks, definitely a movie like that or even a movie like star Wars. Um, I have, I recently had a pretty lengthy, or I had a, I had a conversation with friends about, um, like what 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 sequence to put Neil Breen movies in if you're going to watch them back to back? I I had I, I this is something I've thought about a lot because I think I've only I think there's only one I have not seen yet and it's uh, I am here dot 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 now, but uh, I've seen all of them and I've seen a fair amount of them multiple times and I've come down to this point where I'm like okay. <laughs> why <laughs> why have you seen them multiple <laughs> times i'm sorry this so, needs to be addressed so... <laughs> the same reason why i would want to put together a neil breen film festival that's why Joe. <laughs> because neil breen's movies speak to, to a deranged part of me that i can't properly um okay. i can't properly put i'm not gonna hate i'm just i'm I, I i do not and will not ever understand but i will not hate it's in the same it's in the same way that um like Jurassic Park has very memorable lines to me. There are certain Neil Brain movies, not all of them, that have extremely memorable parts. Um have you ever seen Fateful Findings, by the way? I have not. That's a Neil oh. If you're gonna watch if if you have to choose just one, watch that one. Because I'll just say it's a magical day. And you'll find out what that means when you watch that movie. Okay. But nevertheless, there's a sequence, like there's an order of events in my mind that you watch Neil Brain movies and it's based on, it's based on the accessibility. So like in my mind, Double Down is the most accessible of his movies. It's the one that has the best production value and the plot is very like the plot in that one is the plot you're going to see in every single Neil Breen movie afterward. Okay. But it allows you to understand what the pattern's going to be. Because every movie afterward, the pattern changes up. Like, you know, in one movie, in every movie, he's a, like, computer hacker, right. like, world-class computer hacker, et cetera, et cetera. But the ways in which it changes from movie to movie um, creates this rhythm that you can get used to. So, like, the way that I thought about this uh, theoretical the old brain film festival is you want to set it up to you want to set up in a way where the first movie does not immediately turn everybody off they kind of get what's going on and then as you get into it you can introduce the more zanier elements that come about in movies like fateful findings or twisted pair where it's like there's aliens and shit and it gets into you don't know where it's going next. So this is this is very interesting that you bring up that approach because we're talking about curating. So you're talking about leading with the the, the best foot forward, correct? 
Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, are theoretically the best foot forward. I I say most accessible. That mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily mean best because um I would argue that Fateful Findings is the best and I would not put it first. I would put it in the middle or near the end because I would want that I'd want that to be sort of like here's the climax and then everything after that is kind of like denouement. Like there's more there's other movies to watch, but they're not as important in my mind in comparison. Okay. I wanted to bring up a point. I went to a film festival this past week, uh, which is one of the reasons why, ladies, I have my sexy voice on today. Uh, I was out until 4 a.m. for about five days straight out in the cold, soaking, moist, wet, hot, hot, hot weather, and then cold, frigid night temperatures at a drive-in theater watching movies. Um, It was a blast. One of the nights was a film festival, and it was strictly, like, no-budget films. Like, they had, like, zero budget. They're working outside of the system like that. The first feature film that they showed caught me off guard by how fucking good it was. It was shot on 16-millimeter film. Uh, The acting was top-notch. The audio was well done. The editing was well done. The cinematography was well done. The script was beautifully written where it transitioned from like a comedy into a horror. Like I, I was I was pleasantly surprised. I don't know if that had anything to do with my expectations. Um, but I was definitely happily rewarded um, by the first feature. It was the grand prize winner. The second feature that they showed. Now it could have just been the fact that it started at 1130 at night. Um was a cataclysmic drop-off in quality, (laughs) tone, the whole nine yards. It went from, like, legitimate, like, um, what do they call it? Practical, like, makeup effects and stuff like that in the first film. And zero CGI. Nothing like that. The second film had uh, After Effects gun muzzles. Like, you know how they put the flash at the end of the gun yeah. muzzle? <laughs> it had things like that. And I'm not saying it's a bad movie. I don't want to shit on the movie because people listening might be able to figure out what festival it was and vis-a-vis figure out what movie it was. It was not my cup of tea. Um, but I'm thinking that the reason that I didn't like that second movie was because of the mm-hmm. first movie that we showed was so vastly different in a different right. direction that like I saw like I talked about expectations play a big role. Um right. so it it reset my expectations as to what I was getting and then I the second film that I got was what my original expectations were supposed to be. <laughs> so I'm wondering if they had played that second movie first and I was like this is exactly what I thought it was going to be and then they played the second movie which was different but in my opinion, for my tastes, better um, if I would have enjoyed that first movie more. Or, yeah. you know what I'm saying? Like, it's very interesting That's to know a really fair point. how you curate particular works when it comes to differing things. For me, yes, you want to manage expectations. Uh, I think that's the most important thing when you're uh, preparing an audience to ingest art, uh, whatever the medium yeah. may be, expectations and 
marketing and advertising and all that kind of stuff, you really need to kind of cultivate the right mood. Cause it's like the, the, the old saying, if you say something's the best thing ever a million times to someone, when they go in to see it, they're no matter what, they're going to be let down. It, there's nothing yeah. after that point yeah, that can sure. fix that expectation level. So to me, I'm curious to know your opinion about, and this is going back to a previous podcast of ours about the, uh, fundamentals of art the harmony aspect when it comes to curating things how do you think that should apply i feel like curation is almost entirely an art of harmonizing all the elements that you have together right right because you're trying to find what are the things that they all have in common and then arranging them in a way that either either um performs like a rhythm basically so like uh, going back to sort of how I was thinking about this theoretical Neil Breen film festival, I'm thinking about it like how would I make a rhythm for it? Yeah. Because there are movies that are like just bad, just really hard to get through. Sure. And then there are movies that are really entertaining and really fun and easy to get through. And so you ideally you would want to arrange it in a way to harmonize all these elements together where – whenever you're having kind of a drop off of, of interest, you have something afterwards to pick it back up the same way that you would arrange any story, right? Yeah. Where it's like, you're going to have moments in the story where we have to kind of fill in details, lay some groundwork for mm-hmm. things to come up. So it's going to lull a little bit, but you follow that up with something big to bring it back up. So you can have that roller coaster ride of ups and downs. You need the trough, you need the troughs to make the peaks more interesting too. Yeah in my opinion. Because otherwise it's plateau, absolutely. And you bring up an interesting point that gives me something to think about in regards to what I would open up my my theoretical (laughs) Neil Breen Film Festival with because it's a fair point to say, like, you know, you might not want to open up with, like, the strongest moment immediately because then you, everything else afterwards might fall apart, right? You might just lose interest. Yeah. I've seen a ton of movies where it's just like the first scene is so amazing. And then everything after that just feels like, well, what are we doing here? Like, why Man is this going on? <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Did I sneeze that out loud? <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, so, I mean, going back to your original question, right, which was about, you know, curation harmony as a, as one of the main design principles of, of, uh, of curation um, something that I think about, you know, in regards to that is like, I'm always interested in trying to find harmonization in things that would seem utterly disparate, like they shouldn't go together at all. So my newest playlist project has been making playlists based off of, um, like Zodiac. So I'm not, um, the killer like symbols in the Zodiac. Oh, not the killer. Not the you got my killer. hopes up for a moment there. <laughs> I mean, I could do that, but um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but like the the symbols of the zodiac. So like, and specifically, for me, this is like a one of my crackpot science projects of like people who share a sign. Do, does their music sound similar? And this didn't. This started out of a kind of a just 
mere coincidence of like finding out that um so the musician Brian Eno, the musician David Byrne, and um the musician Robert Fripp are all Tauruses. And Brian Eno and David Byrne have worked together on several projects. And they both before that had a very specific sound and they had a very specific uh method process by which they made music and they were harmonic Hmm. like very easily harmonic they both focused on um like their focus was primarily on how they could use form and how they could change form to make different kinds of music so in other words like the process by which they made their songs they would change it up to see what they would come up with they had a very experimental approach and so that was really interesting to me I, it's something that I want to look into because I, as I look further into it, according to the logic of astrology, there are what are considered earth signs. So like Taurus, Capricorn, and uh, fucking, oh, Virgo um, are all earth signs. So I looked further into this and found out that other musicians that I like, and I'm, particularly all the musicians I'm fond of, happen to be earth signs for whatever reason. So like Frank Zappa, who's a Capricorn, and then David Bowie, who's a Capricorn. They also are very experimental, and then they have a particular shift in focus on virtuosity that's a little different from Brian Eno and David Byrne. So the more I looked into this, I was like, okay, so maybe let's just presume that there's something to the whole idea of astrology. I'm not going to... I'm not here to either um, promote or negate it and just looking into the idea, right? How about I try and make playlists based off of people's birth signs and see what that would sound like when you put all these things together? Are they just like really harmonic? Do they really go together in some weird way that I didn't previously, you wouldn't previously consider? And so that's like a project that I'm, I'm going to be slowly working on when I have time to just kind of fiddle around with it because um, it's curation just by sheer curiosity, basically. And I'm curious. I mean, it makes me wonder if like the word curate and the word curiosity actually have like, they must have some, um, uh, what's the word? Like root language, right? That, um, that brings the two together. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, but anyway, so for you, Jell, like any other further thoughts that you might have in regards to either what I just said, right, which might be a little bit, um, <laughs> a little bit on the odd side of things. No, or... it's not necessarily odd. It's actually um, kind of inspiring to to be thinking about that from an experimental standpoint because the way I approach it most of the time is very known. I guess would be the word to to yeah. to quantify it because like when I'm working on a particular film, I will curate basically everything. The movies that I'm watching are the only ones that I want to watch specifically to pick out things that, fuck it, I'm going to be honest about it, steal to inject mm. into my film. So right now I'm working on Haunted. So it's a steady diet of like Halloween movies um, Willy Wonka, um, Jurassic Park, things where people are on a tour and the tour goes wrong. Um, 
the atmosphere of a Halloween movie. You know what I'm saying? Like I'm very yeah. meticulous about just making sure I'm staying within that realm. I'm not venturing out into challenging waters um, only because there's something to be said. Yes. I, I think, I think there's a lot, a lot of merit in what you're doing with the experiment. But at the same time, I personally, as an artist, am afraid of ingesting something artistic that will confuse my sensibilities about what I'm doing so that I don't get so experimental that I, I sure. wander out of my, not comfort zone, but the safe zone that a particular genre or oh, what yeah. my vision is trying to serve. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like I'm trying yeah, to avoid honest. watching yeah. things like The Office right now because yeah. <laughs> I, I, you know what I mean? But at the same time, at the same time, we were talking about, you know, the lulls to build up again to the, the mountains, you know, after every scare, it's almost, it's common, but I mean, it's important. There's usually some kind of joke because it breaks that tension and it resets an audience. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it's curating, it's curating the emotions that someone goes through when you're telling a story. So maybe I should be watching the office, but instead I would rather watch, uh, what we do in the shadows. And, that's a, well, that's actually, I like the way you're bringing that up because something that I was, that, something that I don't know, thinking about when you're talking about is like, as part of that curation process when you're making the story to create, to make sure that all these elements are harmonic mm -hmm. within the story, if you're going to have humor, it needs to be curated to be a particular kind of humor that yes. would fit within the setting of the story, right? Right. Then you, you don't want to just like veer off into like fart jokes or whatever. Right. And it might totally kill the whole momentum of the story, right? Right. That's when people start getting like tonal saying, whiplash. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's something that I think is is pinpointing towards what you're concerned about, right? Because you don't want to um, – if you're not curating properly, you could potentially screw up the tonal – the, like you're saying, tonal whiplash. You're screwing up the tonal har harmony of everything yeah. within the story. Unless that's what you want to go for, but that's a hard sell. That's a hard, hard sell. I've only ever seen one movie even come close to even trying to uh, like properly accomplish that, and that was Cloud Atlas, and that was a hard sell for a lot of people, and I was one of the few people who was like, oh, that works for me. But like, you know, going from serious sci-fi drama to humorous retirement home people <laughs> all in one go that's that take that's experimental for one and then that's also just kind of daring in terms of you don't see that fairly often right. in the story yeah and so you know maybe there's some argument that the wachowskis maybe could have done a better job of curating how to put those things together because what they were essentially doing in that movie was trying to curate several different genres into one movie and then making it trying to make it work as a story and like i was saying not the easiest thing to do but what were you thinking joe well that's what i was going to bring up is like that's something that's kind of prevalent in my film um it's not just a halloween atmosphere horror movie it's a vampire movie a werewolf movie a gi giant bat monster movie you know what I mean? Like it's it's yeah. an amalgamation of all these subgenres that are going on, and they all have particular elements that are injected to allow your suspension of disbelief. But they have to work harmoniously in order to 
collectively become one whole. Um, I think that's the, the biggest thing about curation is that each individual element has to support a greater unifying theme or overall just like, a, you know what I mean? Like there has yeah. to be one thing that each of them props up and they each do their own job holding a specific part of that, but they all supplement one particular idea. That's that's like the hardest thing about curation is you might have, say you were, like you said, you were programming a, a film festival. If you're programming a horror film festival, you want to have, you know, a vampire movie, a werewolf movie, you know, um, a succubus movie, a, you know, crazy guy in a mask movie, all that kind of shit. But you're going to get submissions of like 50 of those types of movies each. You need to be able to look at each one and start adding, I don't want to call it standards, but there's definitely a filter that has to be applied where you're like, okay, we're only going with films that have practical effects. Boom. You've eliminated, you know, 20 films. Okay. We're only going with films that are directed by females. Boom. Eliminated another 130 films. We're only going with movies that have been shot within the last year. Or shot on film. Boom. And you know what I mean? Eventually you start getting there. So I guess my real my the question that I'm building towards, um, for you when it comes to curating, how do you filter out things? Because it's very easy to just throw a bunch of shit in the pot and be yeah, like, Oh, this right? all might work, but then how do you decide what filters to apply when you're trying to figure out how to curate something to support one unifying thing? But each be in yeah. each element has to be different individually. Does that make sense? So yeah, because the thing that's playing that's going on in the back of my head while we're having this conversation Neil is Breen. I'm thinking about <laughs> <laughs> actually not Neil Brain this time um, is this Pisces playlist that I'm trying to put together, and there are some things that work really well together. So like uh, the lead singer of Seal is a Pisces. Uh, lead singer of Coldplay is a Pisces. Uh, the Performer Aurora is a Pisces, but then also in Pisces is Kurt Cobain and uh, Johnny Cash. Like those two might go together, but they don't go that well together with the other, the other ones that I just mentioned. Yeah. And if I was going to do that, I would have to arrange it in such a way that maybe tonally, you know, one leads into the next. But right. if you put it on shuffle, you're gonna, you know, <laughs> you're at the mercy not, of chaos. Exactly, because that is tonally, those are somewhat tonally chaotic things. So I would start, I would say, I mean, so just going to this example, like I would stick to what elements most harmonize with each other and then take out, like, in, in other words, like, um, so like Seal, Coldplay, Aurora, um, those all go together really well. They all have very similar production styles. Yep. They have lyrically, they're very, they have a lot of stuff in common. Um, so I would just start looking for other artists who perform in that manner and stick to that route. So in other words, there are theoretically two different routes I could take, right? There's like the Kurt Cobain, Johnny Cash route, which would be more acoustically focused, more um, like, like more personally moodier yep. and a bit more like um, more centered on somewhat negative emotions. And then the other one's more centered on a more s like spiritual focus. 
basically. Yeah. Or more, um, like more atmospheric, I guess, is the other word that I would say. Yeah. So that becomes a matter of kind of choosing, like, what is it that I want to go for, right? What is it that I would prefer as the overall, like, harmonic mood? And that is, I guess, the, the kernel of what I would start with in terms of curation is just, like, thinking about, okay, at the end, at the end of this playlist or at the end of this film festival, how do I want people to fill? Where do I want the, what note do I want them to end on? Right. Uh, you know, like any other story, but like the difference being like the thing that, that I think about is what is the main memories that I want the participant to have when everything's done? What are the, um, what are the thoughts that they have in their mind as they're, as they're listening to this playlist or what are the feelings that they're having? And I guess that's where I would start, you know, for that particular thing. This is for the playlist. That's where I would start, you know, is like emotionally, what do I want them to have? What do I want them to feel overall? You know, it's less focused on theme and more focused on feeling. Um, and so that might be, you know, I, I would be curious to hear, to hear what you have to say about this job, but it might be on a case to case basis, right? figuring out how to curate something because different genres or different medium require sort of a different set of focuses and is what I'm thinking. Like music is primarily focused on emotion. So like to me, that seems like where to, where to focus, right? Cause you can have songs that lyrically might be about the same subject, like a love song, but cover completely different emotional territories either like super sad, super happy, somewhere in the middle, chaotic, all, yeah, exactly, all over the fucking place. So to me, in my mind, that's why I think, okay, maybe emotion is where to, to pay the most attention and then go from there. So anyway, Jal, what do you think, what are your, what are your thoughts in regards to that idea? Well, I, I absolutely agree. It's a case by case basis. Um, so a couple of years ago when I was first trying to get haunted off the ground, um, I was trying to come up with, um, I wanted to build a soundtrack to use in the movie, but obviously I'm not going to be able to, I mean, I, maybe I could, I never really investigated it, but like monster mash, don't, don't foresee okay. myself getting the rights to that song. Don't foresee myself yeah. getting Marilyn Manson to, to do a cover of that song. Um, yeah. So what I ended up doing was looking for something, and this is a very food-oriented word most of the time, but something very rustic, which was an indie Halloween song that rode the line of that kind of campy novelty Halloween song, but also kind of moody and autumny and acoustic-y and kind of stripped. So it was not a high production value song you know what i mean like it was very yeah. very limited in what it was because a i figured there was an independent artist who was limited by their own finances but maybe they had something like that and b i could get it <laughs> i mean that right. was de that's definitely a big factor in it um and i ended up following finding the song called halloween is here by danny doubting and i fell in fucking love with it like it's fucking great um, I haven't talked to him in years. 
Uh, but I had asked him if I could use it for the film and he was all for it. So like that was a big time when I was like, okay, I want something that didn't have a lot of money injected to it. That doesn't have a lot of, you know, support here and there, but you know, but it'll work for the film. It'll fit the film. And then you look at something that this is a curation thing that everyone does on every fucking day. I was on Amazon shopping for a new goddamn pillow. The first thing I did was filter by the star ratings to make sure I was getting a quality fucking pillow. Like I want the most dependable shit that I can, you know, trust. And then the very next thing I was doing was filtering by cost. And I was like, I want a quality ass pillow. And I know you get what you pay for when it comes to shit like this. So the more money it is with a nice star rating coupled next to it, that's going to be shit I can invest my money in so I can get a better night's sleep. So it really, you know what I mean? It varies as to what it's being filtered for. For Haunted, which is an independent, low-budget feature film about, you know, very basic core emotion type stuff, a very simple story. I needed something, a song that fit that for a very extra individual who's (laughs) who spends more than they make like myself who wants a really good fucking night of sleep i am not buying the my pillow i'm getting some good shit (laughs) um and that's that's kind of how you know you have to approach it so i think a lot of artists when they submit their work to like things like festivals we've been talking about festivals and how those things are curated when they get that rejection letter they immediately think oh someone didn't like my my work or my work's not good enough. When in actuality, the programmer of that festival, knock on wood, this is the high hopes, just didn't see it fitting what they were looking for in terms of style or any other filter that they were particularly yeah. doing, which is why you'll get you know accepted into some things and not into others. Haunted, the screenplay right. won the grand prize of the New York Screenplay Film Festival. And then I submitted it to some other big horror things, whatever, didn't even make quarterfinalist. And it's like, well, what the fuck is going on? Like, why is it so hot and cold? Is it a polarizing piece? And I had to kind of come to come to terms with the fact that what they were looking for and the ones I got rejected was not what my story was. It doesn't reflect the quality of my story. Um, yep. or even it says that they didn't like it. You know what I mean? It says well, it doesn't as, fit what uh, else they were as, programming. And as much as we want to think like, you know, judges are going to be totally non-partial in how they look at something. A lot of times they come across, they'll come across an entry and they may have like had a hundred entries before that, that either might've been similar or mm. were of a, such a different, you know, like zone or mood or whatever that they're yeah. like, well, this just isn't going to work with what I've seen already. Yep. Like this is or either because it's too much like this or it's not enough like this. Yeah. Basically. That's also it. Yeah. It's too much like something. That's a good point to bring up. Um, so I'm curious to know for you when it comes to curating what you ingest for comics, <coughs> how do you approach going towards new things? Great question. Um, I'm pretty chaotic when it comes to that kind of stuff. Um, A lot of times I will just make picks on based on the writer and on um, I especially 
because of the writer, but also because of the artist. There are a lot of picks that I make that are, I really like this artist. Um, I like, um, so like, for example, Sean Gordon Murphy is an artist who I've loved for a long time. And I will just pick up books just because I've seen his name on the book. And I'm like, oh, I love that artist. This is a whole totally reasonable reason for me to pick it up. And sometimes it's good and sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's just not worth investment because the writer doesn't quite match the artist's like profile or vice versa. Um, so I would say usually if I like a writer or if I like an artist, I'll just pick up books based on that. Um, I very rarely pick up books just exclusively because of the topic. Um, I'm pretty shallow in that sense. <laughs> like, I don't know how many books I picked up just because the cover looked really cool like literally like oh that's a cool cover and then uh it turns out like the book itself is not that great like um never judge a book by was... its cover mr rainwater don't you know that I by know. now i picked up um i picked up a book called uh i think it's called the marquee uh some many years ago just because the artist looked really good uh, and he was a good artist but it was one of those things where he was doing both the writing and the art, and his art, his writing did not match his art, basically. Hmm. You know what I mean? And granted, uh, for things like that, sometimes I look at it as like, well, you know what? I'm just reading this to appreciate the drawings, even if the words don't really, you know, aren't super compelling. Uh, but nevertheless, like, uh, if you look at my library, it's complete chaos because it's it's like really cartoony stuff. It's like action, actiony, somewhat realistic stuff. I, I guess like if you saw any sort of like overarching theme, none of it is hyper realistic with the mm. exception of like a handful of Grant Morrison titles. But beyond that, like it's all very much like either either cartoony or abstract in some way or in some way it's like uh i'm trying to remember what the word is maybe representational i can't remember but anyway like it's stylized in some way because i do like i do like artists who tend towards a more stylized take on things that's why i like mike mignola so much as an artist and like hellboy because it's it's a great book and his art certainly doesn't doesn't hurt you know um how about you, Jal? Like, do you have um, do you have like m- ways in which you pick new movies? That's an excellent question. Art? I knew it was coming as soon as I <laughs> asked you the my question. <laughs> right? um, I am notoriously stubborn when it comes to trying new movies. Uh, it's something that I actively fight against again because I'm trying not to pollute my own creative process about what I'm trying to create in that given moment. And most of the artists that are probably listening to us will know and understand what I'm about to say. You are constantly working on some kind of project. doesn't matter what it is. You're always on something. Once you've finished the last project, chances are you've already started one, the next one halfway through the other one that you just finished and you're got the ball rolling on another one while you're working on the one that you got going. So right. it becomes a really weird juggling act when you have that mindset of I don't want to get corrupted with my vision and, you know, go off track or whatever like that. So 
it's a very, very difficult way for me to allow things to be entered into my brain. Um, so like, you know, it's summer movie season right now. Who the fuck is wanting to watch horror movies? Not a lot of people. Um, so all the action movies are out. Well, I want to go see Black Widow. You know, I've seen all the other 52 Marvel movies that there are. I want to complete the the set in my brain. There is very little, if anything, horror related in Black Widow. Black Widow. I mean, it's debatable what is horror, but you know what I'm talking about. Like classic yeah. monsters and shit like that. Um, so I have to be very careful what I do. And then on top of that, I don't want to waste my time. That's the other big thing because being a father, you know, having a day job, having a hobby, having a side job, having yeah. a, a side side job. <laughs> it's like, uh, you know, there's only so much time in the day. And if I'm going to put on something, I want to know that it's good. So I really do trust a lot of trusted people. That should be the way to put it. I don't trust the everybody that like the Twitter sphere or what everybody's talking about at the moment. In fact, we've talked before about how something gets overhyped. It never lives up to it. Um, but there are a select few people who will recommend things to me. And when they do, I usually know, all right, this is going to be in my wheelhouse. And even if it's not like Willy Wonka is not a fucking horror movie. It's got elements that again, that are, are are debatable whether or not they're horrific. Um, it's not a horror movie. But it fits in that wheelhouse of what I'm doing right now, so I can allow it. So when someone recommends something to me that's good, I can pull things from good movies that I can think, how would I apply that in this particular um, effort? How would I make that kind of scene or that kind of character beat work in my movie? And that will usually help me. But I, I need to have trusted sources. So it's usually going... Once I know somebody and I know their taste in a movie and how they can articulate how they feel about it, then I can usually follow up with whether or not I'm going to want to sit down and waste two hours or spend two hours, however you want to look at it, of my life um, engaging the movie. And yeah, it's all subjective. Some things are not going to hit. Some things are going to be spot the fuck on. But that's been my, my rationale on how do I approach new content there's a lot of people out there who just devour everything and i mean everything that they come across i cannot do that i don't have that that gene where i will sit down and waste 12 hours on canon films that no one's ever heard of that were made solely off the the poster design you know what i mean like that that's just not my style of movie watching i can't do it like that i need people whose tastes align with my own to recommend stuff, then I can trust it. Then I'll, I'll say, okay, I've worked enough today. Today, I'm going to sit back. I'm going to crack open something to drink, get a couple of munchies to chew on. And I want to pop this on. And then tell you, that's how it works. And then, you know, it either gets added to the library or not. So that's one of the reasons why I like, um, uh, the last drive-in with Joe Bob Briggs. Not always on agreement with his particular curation of the movies that that they show. But, but, there are, when it does hit, it fucking hits. Yeah. Have you seen Mandy? Yeah. The movie Mandy with Nicolas Cage? I have Cage? seen Mandy. 
That movie yeah, yeah. fucking blew my mind. I loved it. I would. I just watched it this year for the first time, and that it's like one of my favorite movies now. And so, like that to me is exciting too, because when I when I get that new movie and I know that I I, I may like it, and yeah. then it really hits, like that's just that sparks my soul. That's my kind of thing. So sure. I like doing that when I get trusted. Uh, stuff and you know then there's the classic way of just watching a fucking trailer and going yeah that looks like it sucks or yeah that looks like it's going to be good yeah no i will i will clarify further into originally the what you had started this whole topic off with um within the last 10 minutes um i have a tendency if i like if i like a director or a writer or whatever i'll just go deep dive into it and just get like do every single movie all the good ones all the bad ones just all of it yeah. and that's typically it's almost like a project mindset of like okay i've discovered that i like this creator i now am <laughs> i now have the responsibility of obsessing over them and figuring like figuring out what uh what goes on in their head what's their inspirations all this other stuff and usually out of that, I get like, you know, I, I end up coming back with like interesting, uh, interesting ideas, interesting data and um, interesting sort of like new perspectives on art and creation. And that's usually why I do that is because I want to I want to understand their process and then see how their process like turns out on the screen or on yes. the page. I'm the right? same way. Like, um, like at this point, I've the last couple of months, I've been pretty much going through all of um, there's multiple Paul Andersons. It's Paul. I think it's Paul Thomas Anderson. Uh, that's like the good one. Boogie Nights, Magnolia. <laughs> uh, Not Paul W. S. Anderson. That's the bad one. <laughs> that's the way. Is Paul W. S. Anderson the one who does Resident Evil movies? That's right. Okay. Okay. I might have to go through his movies one day too, though. Um, it's so confusing. But, Do you know the other day, oddly enough, we were talking about Neil Breen. There's a Neil Neil Blomkamp movie that a trailer just dropped for called Demonic. Yeah. Neil Blomkamp yeah, yeah. Camp is not my cup of tea. However, he's a quality fucking filmmaker. Yeah. I read <laughs> the Twitter synopsis, the new film from Neil Breen. That's how my brain processed it. <laughs> It was Neil Blomkamp, but Neil Breen was what my brain read. So I'm watching this trailer going, Jesus Christ, when did Neil Breen get so fucking good? <laughs> it, was, it was the biggest mind fuck I have ever gone through. Um, but it's interesting how, how like what you were saying about a, a particular director or a, a creator um, can lull you in because like for a filmmaker... It's not just one person. There's multiple collaborations going on. I mean, I realize comics have that too, but I noticed, like, for take example, uh, the Fast and the Furious movies. Um, I think the director Justin Lin is fucking fantastic. I think he's an incredible director. He did some awesome episodes of Community. He did all of the really good, more recent Fast and the Furious movies, and I say that as four five six i don't think he did seven but i think he came back for eight but here's the thing i noticed he's really fucking good 
when he has a really good screenwriter underneath him. So he also did Fast and Furious 3, which I did not care for. That's the Tokyo Drift one. That one was not written by Chris Morgan. Chris Morgan wrote 4, 5, and 6, which I fucking loved. He didn't, Chris Morgan did not write 7, which I did not care for. So I started noticing that I do love Justin Lin's work, but only when he's working with a good writer. And I started realizing this about uh, Zack Snyder. I think Zack Snyder is a fantastic director when he has good screenwriting underneath yeah. him that he's not involved in. David Goyer, to me, is not a good screenwriter. I, I, don't, I don't care for his work. So when Zack Snyder has David Goyer co-writing all these fucking Superman movies, it's not working. Like, the visuals are there. He can do that. Yeah. But... The writing is not supplementing it, and that's that's the problem for me. So a lot of times I will get to that filter zone where I'll be like, oh, there's a new Christopher Nolan movie coming out. And part of me is like, did Christopher Nolan write it? Did his brother write it? Yeah. There's, You know what I mean? Like, there's And there's <laughs> a weird it. thing there because Christopher Nolan can go either way. Uh, right. you can get Tenet or you can get Inception. And you know what I mean? Like one of them's like beautifully emotional and then cerebral at the same time. One of them is just strictly a mind fuck that you can't understand what's going on, whether it's the plot or the dialogue, uh, the soundtrack. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I, I have a tendency to really obsess about writer directors. Like, you mm, know, where they are, the where they are doing what's that? The auteurs, as they're referred yeah, to. Yeah, the auteurs. Yeah, even the shitty auteurs. Like, like once again, like, not just Neil Breen, but Ed Wood was another one that I recently, like, started obsessing over because I watched the Tim Burton movie. Like, I watched um, the biopic, I guess you could call it, Ed Wood, and then I had already seen Plan 9 from Outer Space long before that, and I'd seen it probably several times. Yeah. And after watching the Tim Burton movie, I was like, well, now I have to watch... Now I have to watch like all the other Edward Edward movies. Yeah. And um point being like after doing that like I learned so much about this guy as a director because he actually like even though his movies are pretty not very good <laughs> unlike unlike technical professional sure. just you know basics type stuff. Yeah. Um they were all very entertaining in their own ways and entertaining in the sense of like, I felt like I watched something that I hadn't really watched before in a movie, even though it was sometimes confusing, confounding, or like just, um, in some, in some senses dull for a couple of movies. But like, I getting back to my original point, like I will just like, if I, if I'm, very curious about the persona behind the art i'll start to obsess and just like dig into it because i want to find out you know like oh what's going on there you know um do you happen to have any i know you had talked about justin lynn were there any other like more specifically because of the the persona of the the artist behind the work have you ever had people that you just really want to dig deep into because their persona fascinated you I got to say, and this is a very pedestrian answer, but Robin Williams is sure. the kind of artist 
and I do mean he's an artist, or he, you know, he was, yeah. um, that fascinated me how it spoke to me on a level because especially, and this is even more so after he passed, um, how someone could be so jubilant all the time, um, yeah. or at least seemingly in real life. But then, you yeah. know, you look at when he's like testifying before Congress about, you know, the homeless issue and how to, um, how to combat that, you know, he takes a very somber and serious tone and all that kind of stuff when, you know, he's constantly at, I don't even want to say 11. He's at like 52 on a scale of one to 10 with his energy and his comedic, um, output, I guess is a way to describe it. But like his persona of someone who could be so drastic in almost everything that he does and still hold weight fascinates me. The idea that someone yeah. could be so weighty in so many different things. Like they normally say, you know, Jack of all trades, master of none. To me, Robin Williams was a master of all and he could do anything. Sure. He could make you cry. He could make you laugh. He could make you feel good. He yep. could make you kind of scared. Like he's done horror films. He's done comedies. He's done dramas like he really had an, uh, like a wide span of things and somehow he was able to balance that into a personality that no one was able to typecast no one was able to really tear down who there does anyone hate robin williams like even no. <laughs> even when the man even when he got political like you know what i mean like he took shots yep. at whoever was there he was the kind of comedian who was like who's elected all right here i go doesn't matter if there's an R or a D next to their name. He was going at them at whatever he could. And it was always, you know, fair shots and stuff like that. And that's the kind of thing that I always wanted to strive towards was that idea of balancing quality in so many different aspects of my life, whether it be filmmaking or food, or friendship or whatever. Um, that kind of thing really inspired me to watch like his filmography, his stand-ups, yeah. everything searching for clues as to that key he found. Like, that's the thing. Like, you talked about watching, like, a creator's body of work. You can get things from watching multiple movies that have nothing to do with each other by the same artist that you might not pick up when you watch them individually. So, like, someone talked about, uh, they were interviewing Steven Spielberg, and they were talking to him about his wide range of of films and they raised an a point to him that he didn't that didn't occur to him on a conscious level until the person brought it up to him in that moment which was that most of his films center around kids uh with divorced parents seeking some kind of cathartic pair to their that relationship sure. of child to parent after divorce and so on and so forth and yeah. he himself was a child of divorce had no idea that he was injecting this into his films until that moment and you go through his body of work even Jurassic Park is about you know a, a, a surrogate father kind of learning to love his kids through this tra like crazy ass dinosaur park that goes haywire and it's this right. very central thing. And then you look at something like E.T., totally different fucking movie. But it's about a kid who doesn't have a relationship with his father 
and finds a relationship with this alien that kind of fills that hole. And it's like, wow, it's all about these kids trying to repair themselves after a divorce or split parents or whatever like that. So when you look at a creator and you curate their work, like they curate it for you, obviously, by just creating. Um, but it, right. you as the audience, when you organize that into something that you watch in a in a short span, like you're organizing and curating your own you know, film marathon – you start picking up on things that happen over and over and over again, and you start getting a more insight into the themes and who that director is, what they're trying to say. You start seeing their work in different ways that other people don't. That's one of the things that I'd like to pride myself on. I do watch movies a shitload of times. I've watched Halloween a million times. I've watched The Fog a million times. I've watched all these John Carpenter movies like a bajillion times. There are so many things that I can pick up on a John Carpenter movie that people who just obsess about like one of his films about goes right over their head. And they're like, oh, it's not about that. I'm like, yeah, it is. And I'll tell you why. And I can use evidence from other movies to support the same argument. It's so weird. It doesn't usually get me very far because, you know, arguing about movies on the Internet never, ever does. But it's that idea that curating an artist's body of work can give you insight. So I guess the, the the point I'm getting at, and I'm curious to know your thoughts, is that sometimes curating can, by, by eliminating other things and curating a specific thing under one filter, you can actually unlock other things that interconnect things. Does that make sense? I think I get what you're saying. I, I think... From what I'm, if I understand you correctly, um, that's almost like uh, what you're describing, sort of like what the what is usually called in design, sort of like hierarchy, basically. In other words, you focus on you focus on one particular element out of a range of elements in a in a given category, and then allow the uh, allow the those particular things to have the the emergent properties that are inside it so i'm trying to i'm having i am struggling here i have like the general idea but i cannot come up with exact examples on this i think i get what you're saying Um, but what you were saying in regards to spielberg because spielberg has a lot a lot of different movies right right but those early movies are definitely hit on that overall theme that you were talking about of like children dealing with dealing with that dealing with separation right mm-hmm. um martin scorsese like you throw a rock at any of his movies and it's going to be about either gangsters or it's going to be about the interplay of power within any given group or within society yeah um but then you can zero <laughs> in and you can zero in specifically on the gangster films right and that has very specific dynamics that come up that are maybe more unique to like something like the departed or um i guess i guess hugo is an exception to any of that i forget (laughs) that he directed that um i guess he wanted to do something different but well that's uh, the thing though is i think if you watched you know raging bull goodfellas casino and then hugo if you watch those in a row i would i would be willing to bet you could pull something out of that that would tie Hugo into those films. Like you'd be able to go, not just like a director trademark, not like that, 
Like, you know, yeah, oh, yeah. this person is, you know, barefoot, like a Tarantino thing. Like, no. Uh, there's like a, there's probably like some kind of story thematic that's in there, like a theme that ties the them all together. The closest one that I could pull out of my ass right here right now <laughs> is just like, um, you know, a downfallen figure. Because as if I recall correctly, the movie Hugo is about one of the primary focuses of the movie is about uh, this movie director, right, who disappears sort of into history and this character and the main character kind of finds out about to some extent whereas raging bull is about like you know this uh boxer coming towards the i don't know if it's necessary about him coming towards the end of his career but he goes through a downfall yeah, right right goodfellas like all of his gangster movies somebody's going through a downfall yeah so there's always that element of like being being either at the top or being at a place of high esteem and then losing it. So in other words, like a tragic element, basically. Um, that would definitely be... I could imagine that would be one of the things you could pull from curating those three movies together, right? <laughs> the, well, the problem with, with a Martin Scorsese um, marathon is that you there's not enough time in the day. <laughs> all yeah. those movies are like two exactly. and a half to three hours there's no way you're going to get through three or four of those movies in a day um but yeah i think we've we've kind of hit on the topic mostly uh about the art of curating you know there's the the idea of filtering what you want to include what you don't want to include how to figure out what you want to include which is you know understanding um What's supporting a similar argument? What ties together harmony is, I think, the biggest key in terms of curating things. Even when it comes down to your DVD collection, uh, you know, you want to put the horror movies next to the horror movies and you want to put the action movies next to the action movies and the Star Wars movies and so on and so forth. So, like, it, like everything comes down to that harmony because that's what we know. And I think that's, yeah. like, how I curate my own... Uh, movie audience style like how like I, as an as an audience member myself like that's how i curate yeah what i watch is like i know this is what i like this is what i'm going for and sometimes i hit the shuffle button and i let chaos take the reins and i end up watching a really weird fucking movie that like fried berry uh that blows my mind have you seen fried berry i haven't yet you've heard about it I haven't heard about it either. This is totally new to me. Rainwater. Do you have Shudder? No, I don't have Shudder. Okay. But I'm pretty sure I could find it if I looked for it. I I need to like give you my Shudder login or something <laughs> so you can watch Fried Berry because it's the type of movie that you would love. Uh, I right. don't know if it was for me. I started watching it after midnight. And... <laughs> It was just one of those movies where I was like, I can't do this right now. And then I never got back around <laughs> to doing it. Uh, but you need to watch Fried Berry. And I think that's the only place right. you can watch it. Because it's so okay. fucking batshit weird um, <laughs> that I don't think any other distributor picked it up. I don't even think you can get it on like Amazon Prime or Vudu. But I might be wrong. Either way, Fried Berry is a movie that's for you. Either way, I'm getting off the point. Curating, uh, the art of curating basically comes down to uh, the principle of design, of harmony, uh, finding things that work in unification with each other, that blend well together, 
that understand a particular structure together. We talked about a little bit of that, you know, building um, an emotional journey. Variations are important when it comes to curating. Do you know what I mean? Like you want to work within that harmony, but you also want to have individuality and movement, right? Like we talked about the highs and the lows and not plateauing. Um, So I think that it's very important for artists themselves to understand that when you are curating something, say you're about to present your body of work, um, say you have a museum where you're going to be showing, maybe you have your best work, but it doesn't fit the ones that they are asking for. Don't force it in there because... You might sell 20 of those paintings if they are harmoniously tied together and everybody's like, oh, this one's really good. Oh, that one's really good. But if you put one that's really fucking good but doesn't tie in with the rest, you might just sell that one painting because it blows the rest of them out of the water and it doesn't – like it changes – like it's got so much weight, it changes what the harmony should be. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Like you need to be – you need to be um, picky and have – standards that you just say this this doesn't work right now or this isn't fit or you know what I mean you have to edit basically going back to last week's episode you have to edit uh, what you select what you throw out there what you ingest all that stuff understand that curation is a key to being an artist and know that it's more than just oh I like this and I don't like this that's that's like the base level of like yeah. if if you've thrown every filter at <laughs> at your selection and you finally come down and you have to make a choice and you can't decide and you have no more filters, then you just go with your gut and you say, I like that one. And that's it. But otherwise, take an artistic approach to it. Understand that there are principles behind it. Mr. Rainwater, yep. you got anything to add? Oh, I mean, I guess the... The one last thought I think that I might have in regards to all of this is that an artist on a certain level is also curating their audience. In other words, the work that they create uh, to a certain extent also creates the audience that they end up with. Um, and that, that doesn't necessarily... What are you going to say, Joe? I love that. I love that idea that you're curating yeah, your I own mean, audience. It doesn't necessarily mean that you should always make work with your audience in mind, but just understand that to a certain level, all every artist is looking for the others. And by that, I mean they're looking for somebody who gets them. So that's probably the last thing I got to say on that in regards to curation. It's funny, but I'm not going to go on a rant because we're already at time, but... Um, I was listening to a marketing book, which we're going to get to in a future podcast about advertising and marketing your work. Um, but the, the guy that was, that wrote the book was talking about, um, exclusivity and wanting to go after a niche audience when you're marketing and targeting stuff like that. Like you don't want a shotgun blast to your audience because you're going to be wasting money, wasting time. And you might even turn off potential future customers or fans. Um, But if you go after a niche market and you particularly have what they're looking for, you're going to, you're going to profit from that. You're going to, you know what I mean? Like you're going to be spending a certain amount of money and making more back. And that's kind of what everyone wants to do to kind of build what they're going after. So 
the art of curating is understanding that ex- exclusivity is not necessarily a bad thing, even when it comes to your audience. So like everyone as an artist is going through their shit and they want everyone to love them and they want everyone to love their work. And they feel like if, if not everyone loves their work, then no one will love them. The truth of the matter is that's not what you want at all. You want to find the people who want your work and know who they are and serve yeah. that audience. And then that audience will that's, grow. That's certainly how you get, uh, you know, cult classics and figures, figures like Neil Brain, where it's like it takes a certain deranged personality to, but you know what to I mean? get their work. <laughs> there, I'm sure there are musicals that have one best picture at the Oscars. I could ask somebody to name 10 of them. You probably could name three. But if I asked you any person on the street, you know, what's your favorite musical? You know, seven out of 10 are going to say Rocky Horror Music, Rocky Horror Picture Show. That never won a fucking Oscar. And that's really what matters, I think. And in terms of me and my approach to artist artistry, I never I don't care if I win the Oscar or not. I, I really care if I make a film that stands the test of time that finds an audience that says, this is fucking great. I love this and shows it to someone else or their kids or somebody new generation finds it and goes, this still hits. This still claps. This yeah. still fucks. This is what I enjoy. And that, that to me is the real success of an artist is finding, finding your audience and then your audience continuing to grow through generations. That to me is, is the ultimate goal of an artist, but we've gone too long. Uh, We will be back next week. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. And stay tuned because we have some pretty cool stuff planned. And I cannot wait for you guys to see what it is. Talk to you next time.